Okay, so uh, we're going to cover mainly Matthew 5 through 7, but Luke also talks about the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be quoting a little bit from Luke. Now, just to make the point that um, this was probably the first major speech that Jesus gave here in Matthew 5, we just compare reading Matthew and Luke. Last time we talked about the temptations, and my Bible even has headings that are the same here in Matthew and Luke. Temptations, Jesus begins his work in Galilee, same in Matthew and in Luke. Jesus calls four fishermen. And Luke, Jesus calls the first disciples. There's a little extra story here in Luke where Jesus reads scripture in the synagogue. And remember, they tried to throw him off the cliff. So we're going to come back and talk about that story. We have a few miracles in Luke. And then both passages in here very soon give uh, an account of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, And this was really the speech where Jesus outlined his platform and said, this is what my kingdom is like. Okay, and it's just a really fascinating. Uh, I actually toyed with the idea of just reading it without commentary because I think it's so powerful, but we're going to talk about it. Now, just a, a one uh, little passage here, something that was said by both John the Baptist and Jesus that I think is worth mentioning before we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, John the Baptist preached and he said familiar words, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay, but if you look at this uh, passage in several different translations, especially in the uh, more modern translations, uh, it may read like this. Turn to God and change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven is near. Would seem to be uh, quite different here. Repent and change the way you think and act. Okay, we have the same thing here. uh, Jesus' words. Okay, again, before Matthew 5, we don't have many words of Jesus, but we do have this passage in Matthew 4.17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Again, that's the version we're familiar with. But other translations have Jesus saying, turn to God and change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven is near. So how do we reconcile and why are some people, uh, some versions translating it that way? Well, this word for repent in Greek is an interesting word. It's uh, metanoia. Noia is mind or brain, and meta is change, like metamorphosis. And so uh, I think I kind of like the idea here that Jesus is saying to them, um, change your mind about something. And of course, that would change the way that you act. And so kind of what we'll be pursuing in, uh, in this lecture in Matthew 5 is Jesus changing their mind about the king, and changing their mind about his about the kingdom. Okay, I think it's uh, first helpful just to consider the expectations. This was a huge crowd uh, that came from all over Judea, Jerusalem, the coast cities of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, so this is a large gathering that came to hear Jesus speak. And uh, what do you think the expectations were of the people? Uh, if you were a uh, Jewish uh, Pharisee or uh, you know, what, what were they expecting of the Messiah during that time? And I think uh, we can just use his own disciples to gauge what the expectation expectations were. These were the words of Jesus' disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection. And I think this must have been rather disheartening to Jesus after all he'd told them about the kingdom, that his disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time give the kingdom back to Israel? In other words, the expectation was 
Now are you going to establish your earthly kingdom? Now are you going to take over the Romans? And by the way, can I sit at your right side? And can I be first in your kingdom? And all these things that uh, the disciples were asking about. So uh, I think we could make a, a good case that the expectations were that Jesus would release his people, free them from their captors, defeat the Romans, and establish an earthly kingdom. Okay, so if you're getting together to hear, kind of like the inauguration speech um, of this new person, perhaps the Messiah, uh, you would probably be hoping, as many of them were, for something along those lines. Okay, so I thought of, um, I stay far away from politics in this Bible study as far as I can. But the parallel here is recently we're hearing a lot of speeches. Romney gave his big speech last week, talked about the platform for his kingdom. And <laughs> Obama will be giving a speech. Is that tonight? Tomorrow? Okay, you can tell I'm a little out of touch, but he's, uh, will be telling about his vision. Okay, for his kingdom. Okay, and so, um, you know, we do this today, and this is what happened back in that time. This is Jesus' vision for his kingdom. And I think it's kind of sad we sometimes reduce Jesus to coming to pay a penalty. And we kind of gloss over everything that happened in his life. And I think we have to take very seriously the words, the life of Jesus. And the death of Jesus is meaningful because of the life. Okay, The death was the culmination of his life. Okay, If all that were needed were just some blood to fix the whole problem, you know, he could have been killed as a child. Jesus came to live. He came to reveal things to us that were um, critically important. Of course, the death is... We'll, we'll talk about the death and how important, how central that was. But we need to take in the whole picture of Jesus. So we're going to call this the Kingdom of God National Convention. And here comes Jesus to tell us about his kingdom. And I think it's most helpful to consider um, the Pharisees. Of course, there are various different sects within the Jewish, Jewish community, but the Pharisees actually overlap the most with um, uh, with many things that uh, paralleled Jesus. They took the whole Old Testament just as we do. The Sadducees only saw the five books of Moses as authoritative. And so there were a lot of differences between the other groups. But uh, we'll have a chance to talk more about the, the uh, Pharisees, but we kind of want to imagine that group of individuals, the religious leaders, the, the people that the disciples uh, were so uh, enamored with. Remember, on one occasion, Jesus said something that offended them, and I just find this verse kind of funny, that the disciples came to him and said, did you know that the Pharisees had their feelings hurt by what you said? They're very concerned. You hurt their feelings. Okay, And so the, there was a really blind devotion um, to the Pharisees. And Jesus somehow has to shake the people up and see that's not how it is. Okay, You need to have a different vision for the kingdom. So the words are very familiar here. Blessed or happy are those who... And I think this is kind of a surprising list that Jesus came up with. Okay, Would you intuitively think that the new, the Messiah, the King, would start out this way? Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Would that resonate with the Pharisees? Um, did they see themselves as spiritually poor? How did they look on people who were spiritually poor? Okay, that, that was kind of an unusual way to, to start. If we read it in Luke, it's just happy are you poor. Okay, which is interesting. Uh, the difference is there. But again, how were the poor viewed in this time? 
And uh, it, it's very clear that during that time, if you were sick or poor or in any way misfortunate, that that was a judgment of God. You were, by definition, cursed by God. If you were healthy, if you were rich, by definition, you were blessed by God. So Jesus is essentially saying, blessed are those who you consider to be cursed. So it, it's kind of uh, unusual. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are humble. Okay, Was humility something that was really a, a virtue? Was that something that, you know, people, boy, want to be humble. That's really held up on a pedestal. No, remember even the disciples, all the, we want to be first in your kingdom. Um, so this, I think, would not really resonate. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, they might have liked this, but... I think we could make a case that what did Jesus mean by righteousness, justice? It is so often taking care of the oppressed of society, taking care of the widows. And uh, I'm not sure that that's what they, the Pharisees would have in mind when they think of righteousness. Happy are those who are merciful to others. Okay, well, who is my neighbor? Who, who do you mean? Merciful to who? Okay, we'd just be friends, right? Merciful to what, what group of people? Happy are those who are pure in heart. Happy are those who work for peace. Okay, didn't you come to defeat the Romans? And then it ends with happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are you when people insult and persecute you and tell all kinds of evil lies against you because you are my followers. Now, did they want a Messiah who would say, boy, the, the ultimate is when you're persecuted for my kingdom. Okay, No, they wanted to rule. They wanted to get power back. And so to end this first little passage here with, happy are you when you are persecuted. I mean, it, it would have just been the polar opposite of the kingdom that everyone was, was desiring. So we just look at this list, and I think it just would be worthwhile to just spend some time and, and just reflecting on the kinds of things that Jesus highlighted. And I think it was very much tailored for the thoughts of that time, the people of that time, perhaps the spiritual pride and so on. Um, and I think we could make a case that there's kind of an evolution here that, um, you know, to really learn, we have to not consider ourselves spiritually rich. If you are reading the Bible just to confirm what you already think is true, well, you're probably not going to learn very much. Okay, we have to be humble about our approach to understanding and truth and to allow God to change the way we think and act. And ultimately, this leads to a change in actions. We're merciful to others. We have a new heart and a right spirit. We work for peace and perhaps even persecution. So he went on for just a, a few more verses, but as we'll see, he, they kind of stopped him. So he said, you are like salt for the whole human race. And salt, of course, is a preservative. So this is to preserve the truth about God. But there's a warning. But if salt loses its saltiness, there is no way to make it salty again. Is this perhaps a, an indication that they had lost their saltiness? It has become worthless, so it's thrown out and people trample on it. Again, would this uh, you know, make the blood pressure go up a little bit of people in his audience who just thought they had the truth nailed down? And then finally, he said, you are like light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on a lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do 
And they don't praise you, but they praise your Father in heaven. Okay, so that's about as far as Jesus could get in his talk. Now, we're used to, um, and again, I'm not making a political point here, but we're used to hearing politicians when they speak, lots of standing ovations, you know? Uh, if you've ever watched, uh, you know, a, a president give a speech before Congress, what is it, 80 times they rise and maybe half will clap and the other half will sit. Sometimes they all stand up and clap. Um, but it's pretty clear that when Jesus got this far in his sermon, they weren't applauding. Okay, and many people have seen there's a break that occurs right here. Because Jesus, it almost seems like he's saying, oh, hold on just a minute, hold on. Don't think that I've come to get rid of what is written in the law, because that's what they're thinking. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. This is not what he's supposed to talk about. So he has to say, well, hold on, don't think I've come to get rid of what is written in the law or the prophets. I've not come to do that, because that's what you're thinking. Instead, I have come to give full meaning to what is written. I've come to explain it to you. Okay, so we kind of has to, um, I think, uh, quell some uh, disagreements in the audience. So again, if we just spend a little time, blessed are you poor, and we just think about people who were not uh, blessed in that time. Remember the man who was born blind. And the, for the disciples, there are two options if you're born blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Okay, so if you are diseased in that time, the mindset of if even Jesus' disciples was, well, either this man sinned or his parents sinned, and therefore God was punishing him. Okay, again, if you're poor, you're sick, you're cursed by God. Remember, Jesus said his blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. Okay, and they, they hadn't read the book of Job, or maybe they wouldn't have, have asked that question. Okay, but again, he's, he's going against the common perception. Happy are you spiritually poor? And we've already said how the, the spiritual pride of that time. You know, they had the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham is our father. They went to church. They kept a great list. And so they felt really good about themselves. And so, again, would have struck a, uh, an uncomfortable tone, I think. Happy are those who are humble. Well, okay, now it's one thing to talk about humility, but when we have the God of the universe even saying about himself, I am gentle and humble in spirit. Okay, when we conceive of our picture of God, is humility a part of that? I think it's remarkable that Jesus said that of himself. I am gentle and humble. And so he could say, blessed are those who are humble. And then again, happy are those who are persecuted. Now, you would never hear this in a speech um, of a presidential candidate, right? We are promised nationalistic greatness, opportunity for prosperity and all kinds of things. Um, you will never be promised, boy, you know what? The ultimate in my kingdom is if you're persecuted for it. Okay, and so I think we can see, just to kind of imagine how disappointed people were with that kind of a kingdom. Okay, and, and it really, it kind of gets worse from the perspective of the Pharisees. Jesus went on. I think he's, he knows what's going on. He knows how his audience is receiving it, but I think he needs to open the eyes of everyone to perhaps consider there is another way of looking at things. And so he said, I tell you then that you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven only if you are more faithful than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in doing what God requires. And again, this just wasn't the Pharisees' perception of themselves, but the people thought that they were the most faithful. That's the ultimate. And so setting the bar so high that you have to be more faithful than those people 
Uh, man, that's difficult to take. And he gives some examples. You're familiar with the command of the ancients. Do not murder. Okay, and the Pharisees could go to bed every night feeling pretty good about themselves. They hadn't killed anyone. And Jesus would say, well, I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Okay, just imagine pondering that thought. If for your whole life you've been thinking, you know, I've kept the list. And now Jesus makes it much deeper. Don't even hate someone. Or you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But now I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman and wants to possess her is guilty of committing adultery with her in his heart. And so, um, again, if you're going to bed every night and you're going through the list and you're thinking, okay, I didn't murder, I didn't commit adultery, um, uh, well, it's Thursday, but so I didn't break the Sabbath commandment, and you're going through every single one and feeling pretty good, and then someone comes along and says, you know what, don't even desire to do wrong. Again, it would be difficult to take. So Jesus came with a polar opposite view of the Messiah and the new kingdom. And he seemed to set the bar for entering the kingdom so high, um, even beyond the Pharisees' careful law-keeping. Don't hate, don't even desire to do wrong. And as we'll see, uh, I think probably just the, the worst of all, love your enemies, as we read on in this section. Okay, and so I think uh, one point that could be made here is that Jesus is, in a way, out-legalizing a legalist. Okay, when you have someone who's a legalist and they feel like we're right with God by keeping a list, um, he goes even you know, exponentially beyond any list that could possibly be kept. I mean, if we're making a list from Jesus, that's going to be really intimidating. Don't even have a bad thought. How do you like that list? Okay, so he goes even further and says, that, you know what, what God wants is something quite different than what you think God wants. Okay, how can you not desire to do wrong? Well, that requires a new heart and a right spirit and transformation and not just working on the list. <clears throat> okay, so he goes on and he says, uh, it was also said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. And we can read that in the Old Testament, in the books of Moses. But now I tell you, now this, this again would be a big red flag. Is he contradicting Moses? But now I tell you, if a man divorces his wife for any cause other than her unfaithfulness, then he is guilty of making her commit adultery. If she marries again, and the man who marries her commits adultery also. And uh, I just kind of want to make a little parenthetical point here because I think this is so important to our understanding of the Old Testament. Jesus here comes along and would apparently contradict the Old Testament. And so, of course, if you really disliked his message, you're going to come back and challenge him on that. And so the Pharisees did. They came and they tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Because we've got it right here, books of Moses. Yes, he can. And Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? Of course they had. That's why they came with the question. And Jesus said they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his a father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Okay, now here's the obvious question. Well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Why are you saying something different? And Jesus' answer here, I think, explains about half of the difficult Old Testament stories. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. 
I think we could say that about large portions of the Old Testament. It was a concession. It was not the ideal, but God gave in to something that was less than the ideal. Um, we'll have a chance. There are just dozens of examples of this. Okay, God was not in favor of the monarchy, but they wanted a king. So God gave in, and he gave them a king. Okay, it was not the ideal, but um, he gave in for something that uh, to meet the people where they were. And so a lot of the difficult things, I think you could make a case about the fighting in the Old Testament, that it was not God's plan that they fight their way into the promised land. You know, I'll send the hornet and my angel ahead of you, but the people wanted to fight. Okay, so God allowed his people to fight. It's a, it's a concession to our hard hearts. Okay, so we need to be clear that there is an ideal, and then there is God giving in, just as you would as a parent, oftentimes. You'll give in to something that is less than the ideal. Okay, but really the main point I wanted to focus here on, on our little bit of time together is Jesus' emphasis on loving your enemies. Okay, it's, it's, I think, very challenging, probably one of the most challenging things uh, that Jesus talked about, but it's, in, in my opinion, such a central theme of his message. Okay, and so we get this here in his first speech. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, we could quote that in the Old Testament. But now I tell you, Again, something different. Do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. I think this is another example of God giving in, a concession. Because when we talked about uh, this passage in the Old Testament a long time ago, uh, we said that the the model in that time was escalating violence. Okay, so, you know, you kick me, I punch you, you stab me, I burn your house down. I mean, it was going up exponentially. And so there actually is something that could be said Good about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It at least stopped the escalating, revenge kind of a violence. Okay, and Jesus says, yep, that was a concession. I don't think God likes eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I think he agrees with Gandhi that an eye for an eye makes the world blind. Uh, Jesus comes along and says, yeah, there was a time for that, but now don't take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. Okay, just... Imagine just the implications of this. If someone takes you to court to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If one of the occupation troops, okay, remember, these are the hated people, their national enemy, the Romans. If one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. Now, was Jesus popular when he said that? Again, your national enemy. I mean, just picture, who's our national enemy? If something positive were said about them or you actually have to do something like this, um, I mean, would we enjoy hearing something like that? When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something, lend it to him. You have heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now, I tell you, all these but now, love your enemies. And what we're going to try to grapple with here is what does that mean, love your enemies? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And notice, why do it? So that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. Um, Several times here, becoming the children of our Father in heaven is equated with loving enemies. And notice, for God makes his sun to shine on bad and good people alike. God loves his enemies and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. Why should God reward you if you love only the people who love you? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you speak only to your friends, have you done anything out of the ordinary? Even the pagans do that. You must be perfect, 
just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, is that kind of intimidating here? We must be perfect. But notice, perfection is in the context of loving enemies, not in keeping a list. Okay, to be perfect in this passage is how we treat those who are our enemies. And if we just skip over to Luke, uh, the same thing is told in Luke. It's just a little bit different. Okay, but I think it's worth reading. If you love only the people who love you, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do do good only to those who do good to you, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners do that. And if you lend only to those from whom you hope to get it back, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. No, love your enemies and do good to them. Lend and expect nothing back. You will then have a great reward and you will be children of the Most High God. There it is again, loving enemies and then you will be children of the Most High God. And this... Last sentence here, I just, uh, I just find amazing. For God is good to the ungrateful and the wicked. Okay, do we really have that as a central belief about God that we could just post somewhere? God is good to the ungrateful and the wicked. Okay, well, here we have Jesus, both in Matthew and in Luke, making that statement about God. And so I think... Um, Um, I like how the Message Bible translates this. What does it mean to be perfect? In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Okay, perfection means maturity. It means growing up. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be like God. Grow up, your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and gracious toward others, just as God does. Okay, so I have to say this last verse here, um, you know, when I look back on on my life, I have not been very good at this, quite honestly, loving enemies. But what I do admire is that God is this way. And how do we change? Isn't it by beholding we become changed? I think as we begin to really peel off the layers and we see that, man, God is good even to the ungrateful and the wicked, and we come to admire that, Okay, I think that is how um, change occurs. <clears throat> okay, so... Uh, I wish we had time to go through the whole rest of the speech, but when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed. Wouldn't you love to have the video to see the reaction of the audience? They were amazed, perhaps shocked. He wasn't like the teachers of the law. certainly wasn't. Instead, he taught with authority. And so I just want to just think about this a little bit here. Uh, What does it mean to love your enemies? I don't think this is discussing primarily an emotion. Okay, This is rather uh, more of of a decision. Okay, and we could give lots of Old Testament examples. I like to imagine Jesus reading this in Exodus, that if you happen to see your enemy's cow or donkey running loose, take it back to him. Okay, and we could maybe go through a lot of passages like this in the Old Testament. But what I want to think about is who were the enemies in Jesus' day and how did Jesus treat them? And we'll just give a few examples because I think rather than just a, you know, a key text, quote, claim, It's better to see it in a story. How did Jesus treat his enemies? And that, again, should tell us how we should treat the enemies in our day. So certainly the Romans were the enemies. And we just read the passage here, carry the pack an extra mile. Okay, so one argument that could be made about loving enemies is it's weak. It's soft. Okay, is this soft? No, I mean, when you do something like that for your enemy, uh, that really has to open their eyes. And that has to, I think, cause them to to think for just a little bit. Why is this person doing that? This is a very powerful action. And you remember the Roman centurion. 
where Jesus said, I've never found anyone in Israel with faith like this. And again, we imagine how the people, the other Jewish leaders would have felt about such praise for a Roman centurion. How about the heathen? They were certainly hated in Jesus' day. I mean, is it fair to say that if you despise someone that you consider that person to be your enemy? The heathen were despised. And here we have this story about a Canaanite woman. I mean, she's kind of doubly cursed in that time. She's Canaanite and she's a woman. Okay, and the disciples came to him and begged him, send her away. Why are you talking to a heathen woman? She's following us and making all this noise. And remember how the story ends where Jesus is saying, you are a woman of great faith. Okay, Jesus is very counter-cultural. If you're trying to score points with religious leaders, you're not going to be saying this about Romans. Okay, you're not going to be talking with heathen women and you're certainly not going to call them, uh, say that they have great faith. This is, this is very counter-cultural. What about Samaritans? Okay, we'll have a chance later to talk about who the Samaritans were, but they were certainly despised in Jesus' day. I mean, the story of the good Samaritan. Okay, we don't want to hear a story about a good Samaritan. That doesn't fit. Okay, but the, the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. Uh, there's a parenthetical comment here in John 4, 9 as Jesus is interacting with this woman that says that Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. Okay, did they despise the Samaritans? Yes, viewed them as their enemy. And remember, Jesus had this long conversation with the woman. And when the disciples returned, they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. And then when they found out, I'm sure she was a Samaritan woman, um, how shocking that was. Okay, so we, we see not just in words, but in actions. This is how Jesus treated the enemies of his day. Okay, we've already said the poor and the sick were looked down on, were despised in Jesus' day. And we just see how Jesus treated those people. Um, I love this story in Mark 1. Mark often describes it this way, that a man suffering with, from a dreaded skin disease. Well, we talked about leprosy today for the second year students. But what did they think about lepers? Well, you're cursed by God if you've got leprosy. So here comes this man with leprosy. He knelt down. He begged him for help. If you want to, he said, you can make me clean. And I just, I love the way this is described here in Mark, that the writer of Mark, as he tried to paint a picture and describe how Jesus responded to this man, said that Jesus was filled with pity. Okay, again, I'd like to, I'd like to see the face, exactly what it looked like, but it was obvious. He was filled with pity. He reached out and touched him. I do want to, he answered. Be clean. So, again, in the context of a despised people, Jesus is countercultural, and just as evidence, were the Pharisees ever happy with his healing miracles of the poor, of the outcasts of society? They were, weren't they always unhappy about it? Okay, because these are people cursed by God. What are you doing healing them? So this is how Jesus treat, treated the despised of his day. And finally, the riffraff, tax collectors, prostitutes. And we'll read this passage here in Matthew. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters, and if we read it in other uh, Gospels, it was tax collectors, prostitutes, that kind of a crowd, came and joined them. And when the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Okay, these are our enemies. And what is Jesus wasting his time with them for? 
Okay, this this is I think we're trying to describe what it means to love enemies. Well, we want to treat people like that. And if we have any doubt, you know, Jesus, how do you treat people who torture you to death? And his dying words are, Father, forgive them. So it wasn't just a, a theoretical idea. Hey, hey, you guys, love your enemies. He loved his enemies all the way to his death as an example for how we should live as well. So uh, if we try to apply this today, I, I read this story very recently, which I just found fascinating. Um, there was a leader of an anti-Semitic party in Hungary who said horrible things about Jewish people. He said, Jews are lice-infested, dirty murderers. And he discovered that he's Jewish. And imagine you have this paradigm your whole life about this group of people that you despise, and then he discovers that he himself is a Jew. So it came out that his mother was a Jew. According to Jewish law, that makes him Jewish. Not only that, but his grandmother survived Auschwitz, and his grandfather survived labor camps. And so... We just imagine the, the paradigm shift that you would have looking at despised people and you find out you are one of them. And I think that the paradigm shift for us here is to try to begin to see people as God sees people, to try to see people as worth dying for, okay, as Jesus would die for them. And so maybe there's some change in this man. I don't really know the story, but I found it interesting that he planned the trip to Auschwitz. He apologized for any comments he'd made against the Jewish community. He'd like to make a trip to pay his respect to the Holocaust martyrs. And so, again, that's a that's a totally uh, a big shift. So many of you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but uh, he had a lot to write about loving enemies. And I like this passage. Our enemies are those who harbor hostility against us, not those against whom we cherish hostility. Therefore, I think what he's saying is we don't have hostility against anyone. No one is our enemies. So our enemies are people that consider us their enemy. As a Christian, I am called to treat my enemy as a brother and to meet hostility with love. My behavior is thus determined not by the way others treat me, but by the treatment I receive from Jesus. And I think that that really gets at the essence um, of, of what this means. Okay, and I know I read this quote last year, but it's just one of my favorites. One, a good example of how to treat enemies just read about the life of Martin Luther King. And uh, he described it this way. Do to us what you will, you enemies, but we will still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. See, loving enemies is not just for us. The goal in loving enemies is to change your enemy. Okay, and I think, uh, again, that's only possible if you can see them uh, in a different way. So, anyway, who are the enemies in the 21st centuries? And uh, here we get really dangerous with giving specific examples, but uh, I'll just, I'll give a few. Um, if you see a Muslim shopping somewhere, do you, what kind of thoughts go through your mind? Do you look down on that person? Do you see this person as someone that God would value very highly? Okay, or do we look down and despise individuals? And again, if we just consider how Jesus treated all the outcasts, all the people that were looked down on in his time, uh, are we able to treat people of other countries, other religions? Uh, can we treat them as perhaps we might imagine Jesus might? Um, if you see a homosexual couple at a restaurant, could you have a conversation with them? Could you, you know, or would you despise and make comments about them? Okay, I think we could probably give lots and lots of examples 
of, um, of this, but I think we need to just think about who do we despise in our time and how do we treat people like that. And politics. Boy, I'm friends on Facebook with people who are far right and far left and every day post lots and lots of comments that would seem to demonize both sides and it's all very interesting, but uh, what would it mean to really respect someone of a completely different political view? It doesn't mean we don't have opinions and we don't stand up for our convictions, but again, a central tenet of Christianity is that we love our enemies. So there are always objections um, to this and things that are raised. And this will be the last uh, slide here, but uh, I just want to mention a couple things. What do you do with dangerous peoples? Loving enemies doesn't mean we don't have prisons. And it doesn't mean that uh, the uncle who's the child molester babysits the kids. So, of course, you set boundaries and there are, um, you know, protections. But it has to do with how we treat that person. Okay, even the worst sinners. And here's the most common thing, just in discussion with people that has come up. Well, it might not work. Certainly not that enemy. Okay? And here I think we have kind of a a misconception that we do things because it's effective. Um, I think that we should live our life primarily faithful to certain principles rather than living our life thinking, okay, is this going to work or not? So faithfulness trumps effectiveness. And who said that being a Christian was uh, a safe life? Okay, and many times it is it has not been safe. But we're faithful to principles, and that is always higher in priority than considering if it's going to work and if it's going to be effective. And you could say, well, it didn't work for Jesus. Look, he was killed. Did it work in the long run? Absolutely. Did it work in the long run for people like Gandhi, for Martin Luther King? Um, yes, it did. In the short term, it might not. And so, again, it sounds dangerous. Uh, Yeah, I think it is. But I think it's also something that can have a radically uh, transforming effect on the world. Okay, let's pray. Father, once again, we just uh, admire the kind of person that you are, that you would not only tell us to love our enemies, but we see in your life how you treated the people that were despised in that time. And uh, just give us more insight on this subject and help us to live more like that. Amen.